the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, Episode 102. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hey, Sandra. Good morning. How is my friend today? I am good. I'm good. I'm a little... uh, well, as we're recording this, I'm, I'm, this is happening this evening, but when this airs, it will be in the past, but, uh, tonight is my improv show. I'm a little nervous. Oh my gosh. Tell me more. I know. I know. Well, we finished up, uh, my improv class level one and this is what you do when you finish up a class is you have a public performance. And it's tonight. Wow. Where's it going to be? Like I know. (laughs) It's going to be at the theater where I take the class. So it's, if you're in Austin, don't come, but (laughs) it's okay because this will have already happened when you're hearing this. And in the future, don't come to any of them. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Maybe in the future, I will let you come to some, but uh, yeah, it's at Cold Town Theater tonight at 830. And I'm a little nervous. Uh, we're going to rehearse today. My is many that can show up today for a little run through, although improv is made up on the spot. So it's not like you're really prepared. In fact, you don't prepare. Um, but it's just practicing, I guess, you know, talking (laughs) your mouth hole being on stage. (laughs) That. (laughs) So is this at the theater that I've been to? Yes, yes, that Aww. little little black box theater. Um, yeah, yeah. Will your family go? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, my husband wants to come, but I, as we were having coffee this morning, I was sitting there thinking, should I remind him? Nah, I'll remind <laughs> him later. He seems too sleepy to be reminded of anything like this right now. So that's a big deal, Sandra. I know, I know, I know. I'm excited, but I have to say that I have been really like meditating and practicing hard on letting go of expectations. I get really good at this practice and then it just starts seeping back in like a mold growing (laughs) all over everything. Right. And but I really have to keep coming back to it because it's the only way I can let go of fear mm. and do things anyway. It's the only way. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, the, the reality never matches your expectation anyway. So yeah. if I just expect to be surprised, just always expect to be surprised then I can just show up and be the best I can possibly be, be an open vessel. (laughs) 
ready to just let reality take over. (laughs) That's a great practice. I've been practicing that too. It's funny. We're on the same page yet. We, I love it when we come together and talk about it. We're like, oh, I'm going through that too. Yeah. Yeah. I've been making lists of things to let go. Yeah. I had to make like a physical list, kind of like a gratitude list, but like shit I need to let go of that I cannot control the outcome. No, you can never, ever, ever, ever control the outcome. That's the thing. You 100% can't control it. Sandra, why are you bursting my bubble right now? I know. I know. It's the third month. It's we're on the third step in some of our meetings that I go to, or some of my meetings that I go to. And they're reminding me at every meeting, like the third step's all about letting go. Right. Because really all you can do, all you're doing is basing it on something that's already happened, right? You can only base your, your, your future tripping on something that's already happened and talk about limiting thinking. If you're basing everything on something that's already happened, it just keeps you stuck. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're yes. I'm nodding my head. Yeah. So (sighs) anyway, progress. Well, that is is very exciting. It is exciting. And I like that you're improv. You can't future trip on that because it's not even, you make it up as you go. It's made up on the spot. Wow. (laughs) I like that. that. Yeah. So that's, that's it. That's my day. Exciting. It is exciting. Well, I had the good fortune to meet an unruffled for coffee last week. I wanted to tell you. Oh, it was awesome. It was amazing. I have, I just feel like we're so fortunate. Like when, when, when the online world becomes the in real life world, it's always a delight to me. And it used to be really scary to go meet somebody that you've never met before, but I don't know, somehow through social media, it kind of feels like you kind of know each other a little bit. I I agree. That was really fun. That was really fun. That is fun. Um, not to hijack your story, but I met Adriana. I met Adriana Marchione at, yeah, Chloe and I took the train downtown and I didn't get to sit through her. She did like a, she did a little mini workshop, like an hour and a half long workshop. And I didn't get to sit through that, but I did get to meet her and that was really fun. And you're right. It, no anxiety over meeting someone. It's just like, Hey, we yeah. already kind of know each other. <laughs> That's right. Well, it, so, Sober by South, I mean, sorry, South by Southwest started over the weekend, right? Yeah, it really started. If, yeah, it really starts, I guess, on the 6th or 7th, and then it goes through until, gosh, like the 15th or or no, no, beyond that. It's 15th through 18th, 17th or 18th. So. so by the time this airs, you will have experienced some fun this weekend. Yes, exactly. Okay. Exactly. There's going to be um, a sober by Southwest meetup. And I just found out that Holly is coming. So I'm, I'm hopefully I'll get to see Holly. Yeah. Oh, that'll be fun. Well, you're going to have a great time. Oh, I'm so looking forward to it. Yeah. And you get to meet more, more sober women, more sober community in Austin, which you guys have a vibrant, thriving little community there. We really do. I know. I was thinking about that the other day. Um, we do have, we have a great group of, of sober women. I mean, there's a lot of sober people obviously in Austin. Um, but just our little, our posse is 
is really pretty awesome. We have a pretty awesome little posse of ladies. Mm-hmm. Yep. We do. I love it. I absolutely love it. Oh, one thing I want to say before we jump into introducing our guest, um, I went to a party this weekend, um, a 20th anniversary party for my friend who owns a restaurant. And my friend, so nice, he um, called me a couple days before the event and kind of did a little rundown on like, what do you think I should do for a non-alcohol, for the people who don't drink? And I was like, are you serious? This is my friend who had a hard time with me getting sober, mm-hmm. missed, missed his drinking partner, um, even said so um, in some really direct, curt ways early on in my sobriety. And over the years, he's totally changed as I've changed, mm-hmm. you know, and accepted it and told me how beautiful he thinks it is that I'm a model. I'm modeling this for his children, that, that not everybody has to drink because they're in a very wine-centric um, business out mm-hmm. in wine country. So anyhow, he was just lovely. And um, I gave him some advice and I just said, as long as you just don't serve tap water to everyone, like if right. you up your game there, sober people, people who don't drink, who you know maybe aren't necessarily sober, but just are the DDs for the night, they're going to really appreciate that. Throw a lime in it. You know what? <laughs> just yeah, well, I, and some lime that go a long way. <laughs> and you're right. I love how you know he's been challenged now to change the story and look things with a look at at social situations with a different perspective, and just assume that there are going to be non-drinkers that show up to your event. Yeah, I had taken him a bottle of. I can't remember if I shared this last week, so if I'm repeating myself, I can't remember. Uh, seed lip. I ordered mm-hmm. some seed lip. And I took it to his house for a dinner party and, um, and he gave it to his bartender to try to figure out a, a drink to make, um, on the bar at the restaurant. And he said, he'd let me know how it goes and I could taste it. Um, but that night he had, um, a beautiful water glass area. He, they named, made name tags and they had this, um, non-alcoholic juice that they had and they called it the teetotaler mm-hmm. and his manager, um, said, Hey, uh, do you like what I named? I named that for you. And I said, you are so nice. Then there was beautiful water with cucumber. And of course, because I'm the person watching what everybody drinks all night, um, I'm watching how many people are drinking water. Mm-hmm. I was just like, kind of watching like they had these little Marie Antoinette champagne glasses that we, I was drinking out of. And they're so tiny. <laughs> I was like getting water like 97 times, you know, in the mm-hmm. little, in the little tiny glass, but I was just watching and I was like, Oh, so not everybody drinks. Like I always thought everybody drank. <laughs> no, no, they yeah. don't. And when you offer a, a lovely non-alcoholic drink, yeah, mm-hmm. it's surprising how many people will choose that to sort of yeah. moderate themselves. Yeah. So that was awesome. I just loved it. It was a fun party. We left at 930 because we're so crazy. Um, <laughs> but I was in bed by 10 and I was like, that's a great party. I got all dressed up. I wore tons of pearls oh, fun. and I was channeling um, our friend from She Recovers Jill. And I was like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to have some fun tonight. And I did. That's awesome. I did. So let's get to introducing who our guests are. Yes. We are I'm so excited, excited to yeah. give you guys this conversation. Um, Today on the podcast, we have Christy Coulter, and she is the author of the 2018 essay collection, Nothing Good Can Come From This. Her work has also appeared in the Paris Review, Glamour, Women's Health, Long Reads, Vox, and elsewhere. She also blogs at offdry.com. 
Christy lives in Seattle with her husband and golden retrievers and is working on her next book. Yay. Her sobriety date is June 23rd, 2013. Yeah. And Christy, uh, we talk about in the episode about her essay that went viral on Medium. And that essay is called Anjali, E-N-J-O-L-I. And if you haven't read it, uh, I highly encourage it. You can also listen to it on the Medium website. Um, So on medium.com, you can just search for Christy Coulter or Anjali. Um, She has a website that's her name, christycoulter.com. And let's see, am I missing anything there, Sandra? I don't think so, but I just loved our conversation with Christy. Yeah, she was great. And we ran into her at She Recovers. Her Uber never showed up and we're like, hey, you want to ride with us? (laughs) And uh, we took her to her book reading that night with our friend Stephanie, drove us all over there. So it was just fun to hang out and get to know her a little bit better. And um, we love this conversation. Yeah, you guys enjoy Christy. Welcome to the show, Christy. Thank you, Tammy. Good morning, Christy, Tammy. So our listeners know, Christy, where are you chatting with us from? I am in my office in Seattle, Washington. Mm. Yes. You guys, you guys have been experiencing lots of white powder lately. (laughs) It has been crazy. It's, um, we had about, I want to say six to seven inches of snow a couple of weeks ago. And that is nearly unheard of for Seattle. That is insane, right? Yeah, it is well, insane. I have to ask, cause I know you're such a big runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you run in the snow? Well, no, I mean, I, never, <laughs> I when I lived in Michigan where, where it snowed all the time, I wasn't a runner and I just didn't even want to try it. it. I know a guy who in Michigan was a runner and he broke his leg because he slipped on some ice. Oh my God. That's awful. Years ago. And it was one of those things where he had surgery three times and, and it stuck with me. So if there's any slipperiness on the road, I'm just like, nope. So, um, I actually joined, um, a cheap gym this year, partly because it's also dark here. Oh, right. 18 hours. It's like being in Scandinavia, you know, it's, it's so dark and then the snow. So I was on the, I had to like, resort to the treadmill. Um, and I was grateful to have it. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. We don't, Seattle doesn't really have snow plows. I mean, there's a few and there's, you know, some supply of salt and, and sand, but it just doesn't snow here or we'll get a tiny dusting. So when it snows, it's, it's actually a really big deal. Um, it was right. Kind of things do shut down. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's really do. Yeah. It's like when it snows in Texas too, or yeah, even exactly. ice, we're not, we're not prepared. Plus I don't even want to invest in all the gear and everything. No. Like, I just, no, no, thank you. I'll just say those days. Yeah. <laughs> I had a pair of, I had chains for my last car and it's the only, we had about a foot of snow about eight years ago. And it's the only time in my life, including 12 years in Michi- Michigan, that I actually had to chain up just to like go to the grocery store with Seattle. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't, I've changed cars since then. And yeah, you don't think about like, oh, well, I need chains. Now you can go an hour uh, east of here or somewhere north, I don't know, away and be in the mountains. And so, you know, people who do that, who ski have all that stuff, but you know, the rest of us don't. So it's, um, and when I first moved here, I thought, oh, people just don't know how to drive in the snow. And partly it's true because why would they? But it's also a very hilly city. I mean, it's, it's San Francisco hilly in places and 
I am good at driving in snow. I have a heavy car with traction control. And still, if it's icy, like I have slid down a hill, you know, like, like yeah. anyone else. So. No, thank you. Yeah. So we're <laughs> ready for some spring here. <laughs> I went, when I traveled to, um, when I was about six months sober, Christy, I went to um, climb some mountains because oh. that's the goal I put in front of myself, mm-hmm. but I didn't really know what I was doing. My friend did. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she was like, there's going to be snow. And I'm like, oh, but it's August. She's like, yeah, but it's, it's Mount Rainier. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, <laughs> all right. But to, I'm going to just tell you how dumb I am about geography. So um, we were at the REI flag store in our flagship store in Seattle, right? Like the yeah. Mecca. She's like, are you sure you don't want to get hiking boots? And I had like these red Converse on. And mm-hmm. I was like, I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. And she goes, seriously, like you, we're here. Are you sure you right. don't want to get any hiking boots? And I was like, I'm going to wear them once. No, I don't think so. Oh my God. So we go to Mount. So she knows better because she's from Washington mm-hmm. and she's hiked up to John Muir's cloud camp before with oh, her wow. father you know, and she's, they got stuck there once. So she like knew what we were about to do. Yeah. And <laughs> I get up to the mountain, Christy, and I look and I go, oh my God, there's snow. <laughs> like a lot of it. <laughs> and as we start walking, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I see maybe why you thought maybe I needed hiking boots. And she just like is shaking her head. And she, <laughs> I asked you about two dozen times. <laughs> she just forced you, like grab your credit card. <laughs> right. Well, I'll I'm tell you I'm surprised she didn't just bring you a pair. I just happened to bring you a pair. Right. <laughs> yeah. Three I years later, we went, back. we went back three years later and she gave me a spreadsheet and on the spreadsheet at the top of it, she said, you will get everything on this spreadsheet. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, what are metal crampons? Like, I don't even know what that is. Mm-hmm. Why do I need it? She's like, cause there's a vertical ice field. I'm like, okay. So anyhow, <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, Seattle ma'am. snow preparedness, driving. Hiking. Oh yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> like people, we had a snow a couple of years ago where people got stuck on the highway for eight or nine hours because there was so much traffic and people were just walking away from their cars and abandoning them. We're like a very delicate city. We're outdoorsy, but we're also kind of like eggheads and like, we just don't, yeah, it doesn't take a lot to just kind of throw us off balance. It's like, ah, I don't know what to do. Well, you know, I actually, so when I first got sober, I went for a four mile hike in these really cute Prada slides. (laughs) I knew we'd be friends, Christy. I knew it. <laughs> because I was I was out on this island off the coast and I, I was wearing these shoes there. And I was like, oh, just walking around. And I ended up just walking, walking. And mm. and um, yeah, it's not great. It was on sand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you didn't do like, that again though, right? <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, that's so the next time I've been back to that place many times. And you know, I wear like real like boots or um tennis shoes or something but uh-huh. but yeah I was kind of legendary for a while for, for I would just go out <laughs> and you know walk or absolutely wrong shoes yeah just yeah. just absolutely the, the worst ones and you know I'm and they were kind of too nice for that too like it's not a great way to keep your shoes in in good shape <laughs> right. I bought them used but still you know <laughs> what what island were you on the San Juans I was on Whitby Island Whitby okay which is, I don't know if that counts as like a San Juan or not. It's a beautiful place. It's about half, I, I, you can be there within 45 minutes of Seattle if you hit the ferries, right? And it feels mm-hmm. like another world. Like there's no cell signal or yeah. they think there is, but there's, there's not really. Um, right. It's great. There's, there's so many islands. We were just talking to Jen Ferber was on our show and mm-hmm. 
she runs uh, Right Doe Bay on Orcas Island. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So that's where I'm, I'm going in a couple of weeks. So I was just curious which island. Wait, you're go- I'm going to be in Orcas in, well, no, in about a month. Um, yeah. It'll be my first time out there, actually. Which is- April 4th through the 8th. Well, you know what? I will be there the same. Are you going for the literary festival? Um, no, I'm going to be at a writing workshop. Um, at oh, you'll Do- be at Dobe. At okay. Dobe, yeah. I will be on the island the same, <laughs> that same weekend. Okay, oh, well, funny. we have to <laughs> run yeah. somehow. Okay. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we covered, we've covered um, the weather again at the beginning mm-hmm. of the podcast, which I love, making some plans to meet up. Should we get yes. to the part where we interview Christine? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's all the important things. Oh. Well, Christy, for, um, for some of our listeners, maybe they don't know your work, um, mm-hmm. but uh, we, um, your story, I know that we met, me, you, and Sandra have all met in an online um, recovery space. Yep. And I think if you could maybe tell the short version, if you, so that we can talk about other things during the show of uh, how you came to sobriety, you know, what was that turning point for you? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was about, it'll be six years in late June. I think it's June 24th, although I'm not sure. Um, And I had been drinking, well, you know, I mean, drinking in some ways since I was probably 16 or 17. Um, But probably had a decade of drinking that I knew was problematic. Um, And for a while, it was like, I just knew it was problematic, but I still felt fine. And then eventually got to the point where I really knew I needed to stop. I tried moderating a lot. That was total failure. It's just no fun, you know? Um, Absolutely no fun. Yeah. It's like failure, 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 and it's not enjoyable. And I finally... I didn't have any kind of dramatic turning point. I would say I just kind of woke up. I'd had a couple, a couple recent stints where I tried to moderate again, like to drink every other day or every two days or three days or something. And and it just didn't work. And I woke up one morning with um, a headache and I just thought, you know, I'm done. Or I have to try to be done now. And my husband was out of town for the week and that actually worked well for me because I thought, I just want to just do this alone. I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not going to, this is just the way I tend to do things is I just head into them. And I just, that night, you know, said, okay, you're not going to drink. And, um, it was really hard, but doable. And I think I got through like two more nights. And at that point I signed up for, um, Bell's Tired of Freaking tired of thinking about drinking 100 day challenge. Um, I had found her website because I Googled that phrase. I was, I realized that what I was tired of was having to think about my drinking all the time. Mm. And so I am, and I emailed with her a couple of times and said, I don't know if I'm ready. And she said, well, we'll be here when you are. So I, I took the pledge that, you know, I don't know if you guys know her pledge, but it's kind of funny. It's like, yeah. even if there's a zombie apocalypse, I'm not going to drink. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and I started just emailing her every day. Like, I mean, I think now this is like a service that, that she sells, but at the time I think I was her pen pal, like number 100 or 76 or something pretty low. Right. She just did this as a free service. Yeah, she did. So long. Yeah. So she, I haven't looked at her site in a long time, but yes, I hope she does charge she, for a program now. Or she something. does now. She has, um, 
I haven't looked at in a little while, but she has a program and she has a couple of people who are sort of like work, do the same thing she does. And you can basically sign up for a coaching package or, um, you know, there's still lots of free resources where you can uh, track your, your own days and, and be part of some kind of accountability thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was amazing. Like just having this person in Paris to email once a day and just say, Hey, I'm sober. And she would email back and like, it just, I don't know, really did something for me. Mm-hmm. And so I got through that week and I was feeling pretty good by the end of that week. My husband came home and, and I said, Hey, guess what? <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I'm like seven days sober or six days sober. And I knew pretty quickly that th- it was going to be much better for me like this. I mean, I, I wasn't one of those people who was months in and going, Oh, I don't know. When does the good stuff start? Like I just felt better pretty fast. Um, I think it had been like, I'd been afraid to pull the bandaid off. And once I did, um, I thought, okay, this is, is just better because the worry about drinking was gone. I mean, what happened to me was I tried everything I could think of to stop worrying about my drinking. And then I was like, well, you have one thing left and that is to actually quit drinking because then you can't worry about it. And mm-hmm. it's true. <laughs> and, and, and that worked out really well. And um, yeah, and I, I've been sober ever since. It was just like, I, when I change, it tends to be something will be working in me for a long time. And I won't feel like I'm changing, but then I'll look back later and go, oh yeah, you were working up to that for years. And then something clicks and I'm just, and I'm done. Mm. My story is so similar to that. Um, but I have a question. So if you, if, if you, do you think if you didn't start feeling pretty good right away that you would have kept going? I think I would have gotten through the hundred days because I'm just, you would commit it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, well, I can't, you know, like someone will know. Um, Boy, that's a good question. I think I would have had to get some real support. Well, I mean, not that I didn't have real support, but I mean, I probably would have tried then going to AA, which I've only dabbled in, or um, maybe I've thought about doing some kind of outpatient. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think that I would have really tried something else. Yeah. And given it more time. Yeah. Right. Right. Found more support or something. Yeah. Yeah, Because I hear so many, you know, we, we all hear so many stories because we're in the recovery space Mm -hmm. and, uh, there are so many women that don't feel good right away. I did. I felt, I feel very lucky that I felt pretty good right away. I hadn't been sleeping for years. Mm -hmm. I hadn't been sleeping a, a night I hadn't had a solid night's sleep because I would wake up at 3 a.m. in a bed of sweat by right. detoxing and it would yeah. wake me up every every single morning. And so I felt pretty good right away. I'm I'm glad that I did because I don't I hope that I I would hope too that I would have kept going, but I'm not positive. Yeah, I mean I hear from especially these like young women in their twenties or in college who've quit and, and I think and they, I'm, I admire them so much, but it sounds so hard. You know, when you, I was very lucky, I was in my 40s, my husband was very um, supportive. But if you're in like a social circle where your friends are all drinking or, you know, you're suddenly really an outsider and you're not feeling good, I mean, I think that just has to be so hard. So I feel lucky too. I am, um, 
one thing I realized really quickly was that I thought I had just been tired for like a decade and I didn't realize I'd had a low grade hangover. Hangover. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was like, oh, interesting. That's it's like your bar. You, you had reset your bar feeling yeah. good. Like so low. And then I felt like such a dummy when I think that. Same. Same. Because every now and then I'd have a real hangover, you know, and mm-hmm. I would think, oh, well, this is a hangover. So I didn't realize the rest of it was also a hangover. Mm-hmm. And um, like, it's just, yeah, you don't just wake up with a, a mild headache most days. Um, and uh, so, so, and I also found that my, and I think this is probably pretty common, but my anxiety and depression, I, I've been drinking and thinking, well, once those are better, then I'll, I'll quit drinking or I'll cut back. And then counterintuitively, when I quit drinking, they got a lot better. Right. And I did not expect that at all. Same. Even though it's medical science would say it's true. But I also didn't think that medical science would really apply to I didn't me. believe it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, so say this is, you say this is a depressant, but. But. <laughs> or it's like, how many times have you taken like a prescription medication? And it's like, you shouldn't drink while taking this. And you're like, ah. Oh, whatever you know that's a suggestion, suggestion. Exactly. <laughs> and i was such a, and i was someone who would follow the rules in other ways you know like i'm trying to think of an example but you know normally if my if a bottle of pills said not to do something i'll take it that's fine but but drinking i would actually just kind of just skip over it you know like yeah. oh, well, that's just they're just saying that for legal reasons and well maybe but they might be good legal reasons <laughs> Well, you know what, Christy, what I wanted to mention was like, because you just said it here when you were sharing that, like uh, kind of a little bit of a wool follower, right? And, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very and much. And so you also, your blog, I know that you're the off dry blog um, that you wrote and write, um, you keep your day count was kind of what your title of your blog posts were. Yeah. And that resonated with me because the accountability part of it, right? Yeah. 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 And so when I read that from you, I was like, oh, I think I know her. I, I am her. Yeah. Really to actually be able to check off. Like I was a kid who loved having like a, you know, the chore charts where you would check off your, your stuff and then you get a prize or something. Yeah. Um, so I loved using my day count and just to see it pile up. And then I know at one point I never intended for that to be like the, the guiding, like the organizing principle for the blog. Mm-hmm. Um, but at some point, enough people had said, Oh, I love that you do that. That I thought, okay, well, that's, that's how it is now. You know, right. Like I will always have my day count. So I have to look it up now. Um, I don't yeah. you know, actually know what it is. And Belle told me once that I was off by like five days. So I don't, <laughs> I just told people in the podcast, I was like, this is off. I'm not going to go back and change all the time. Right. But if you're you really obsessive, you can add, you know, right. Yeah. Well, I think that's how we first met was through the online, um, recovery community. And, yeah. um, and I had written something about a check engine light, um, mm-hmm. blog post, and then you were sweet enough to do it justice and write about it <laughs> because I, I really love your writing, Christy. Oh, thank you. And, um, but that metaphor of checking our engine light, um, for our life and for our sobriety and checking in, yeah. um, you really took that metaphor and went with it and I loved it. And I was just going to ask, you know, has, do you, are you obviously, I think I know the answer, but um, do you still do that? I mean, are you still checking your sobriety engine light? And so how do you do that? It's funny. I was actually thinking last night or the day before that I, I've drifted just recently. I drift away from it and I have to come back to it. 
I find that I'll do that over and over. Um, you know, my life has been so, the last year has been really crazy with the book coming out and I left my corporate job. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on new stuff and it's, it's been like really hard to learn how to establish a new routine. And I'm a very routine driven person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I still, you know, do the things that keep me sober, but I think I've been doing them less consciously. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's, I'm glad you mentioned it because it is something I want to get back to doing. I remember hearing, learning about halt, you know, are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired yeah. when I was newly sober? And I thought, wow, I wish I'd known this all along. Like that's something I ended up telling all my friends and people who were sober and not were like, oh my God, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, when you're feeling awful or you're feeling an urge to drink, you just stop and think about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I would like to add thirsty to that too, because sometimes yeah. I just need to drink some water. Right, right. And sometimes when I thought I was hungry, I was actually thirsty. Um, right. Not bourbon, but, not bourbon. Right. Just water. water. Anything but bourbon. Right? I just need some water. Yeah, yeah. Like it's that simple. So I, I, I'm, it's funny. I I keep saying, oh, now some routine has come back. And then I just got like these three travel opportunities in the last month um, to go promote the book. So, so I trying to come down to the conclusion that probably nothing is going to like the, the new normal is a little crazy right now. Um, but yeah, I want to start doing that more. And I need to like, what is, do you, do you guys have a method, like a formal method of doing it? Is it through writing or like, meditation. I think it's just like, I, we talk about it on the show a little bit and right now it's really changing for me, but just your morning routine, you know, the morning routine um, yeah. and whatever that looks like and how it morphs and changes. Um, meetings help me check in, mm-hmm. um, give me a prompt to think about for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sandra, I've, been, I've been thinking about doing, about doing some more meetings. I am, I'm going to a writing conference in a few weeks in Portland. It's 12,000 writers in one place. Oh, wow. <laughs> I know. Somebody was like, 12,000 people with social anxiety in one building. That's going to be great. <laughs> and, um, and they, uh, you know, any place you have 12,000 writers, you're going to have just a ton of drinking yeah. and, and drug use. Um, but there's, there's 12 step meetings there. And at first I thought, well, that's just, that's a place I could see some of my friends and also like, I want to meet more friends. Like I'm going as a social. Right. You could find your people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. To be like, Oh, I, Oh, he's sober. Um, because there are a lot of writers who are sober and, um, you know, not, and they don't just happen to be like, it's not like, Oh, I just never drank. It's a no, lot. Of it's intentional. It. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like musicians too. Uh, yeah. you know, if they're over the age of 40 and they ever had a drinking problem, there's a good chance that they've stopped drinking. Because- I, I've noticed that, you know, and yeah. I was, um, I'm a big psychedelic furs fan and I was mm-hmm. reading a thing, an interview with Richard Butler last time they toured. And I think he said he quit when he was like 24. It was on their first tour when they first got famous. He was like, oh, if I keep doing this, I like, I'm going to die or I won't have a career. And he just stopped. I thought that was incredible because I know a lot of musicians and it takes most of them longer, but yeah, there are tons of sober musicians um, and visual artists. And I think, I don't know if it's that people are are you know there's something about creativity and self-medication going hand in hand um like the creativity is an attempt to 
heal something. And so is the self-medication yeah. or, you know, I don't know what it is. Or I think there's also that, that mythos that a lot of us buy into of like the macho drunk artist, you know, the drunk Hemingway. Drunk. Yeah. Right. Hemingway, who like right. You can't read yourself. Right. Exactly. Let's, let us not forget, but yeah. yeah, you can't reach, like you can't reach your peak of creativity unless you're, you know, unless you're using something. Yeah. And I never wrote, I mean, I actually never wrote while like sat around and drank and wrote at the same time. Um, I just couldn't, I just couldn't write well that way, but the lifestyle, I, I certainly, it's hard not to buy into. Yeah. And it's a little weird if you think about growing up, like as a 17 year old girl in like suburban America with like Charles Bukowski as your role model. Like right. that's like, what <laughs> do I have in common with that guy? Like, I know I didn't work in a cannery. Like, I just, <laughs> I <know>. um, <laughs> but it's very romanticized. Very yeah. Romanticized. Even though it's kind of terrible. I mean, think about Hemingway. He had like, he was divorced a bunch of times. He committed suicide. Like, I don't know that he was a happy person. Right. Mm. Yeah. But intermittently, I guess. When I went to Cuba in 2000, 99, 2000. Oh, wow. You went to um, Cuba a long time ago. That's yeah. And we, when we went, there was this place, you know, it's the El Floridita and it was um, where they invented the daiquiri. Oh. One of Hemingway's haunts. And then his, another place where he lived was just on the other corner that, that was now a hotel. Yeah. But totally. Just when we walk in, you know, the, the, the cigar smoke is from the ceiling to the middle of the room. You know, you can see it. You could like yeah. cut it. And these bartenders with these um, kind of velvet jackets on and mm-hmm. Jera bombs of champagne because it was New Year's Eve. Oh my and God. it was just this kind of, it was like from a movie and, and it was kind of romantic and um, yeah. super visual. And just, I could see like some of that lifestyle appearing that way. But yeah, look at what happened. Right. Like that was one night, but that cannot yeah. be life. It's probably fun. And right. yeah, I mean, it's, um, and I, sometimes I wish there'd be more movies or documentaries or something about people like creating in like, about what it took for him to, to, well, I'm, I'm not a big fan, but obviously he's been hugely important in literature. And like, what did it take for him to do that with, with his drinking? Like, what would he have done if he hadn't been drinking? There's yeah. this great book called The Trip to Echo Springs. I read I, that. Yeah. Have you read it? Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, I read it when I first got sober just because I think it was just coming out. And it's, um, for people who don't know, this British writer, Olivia Lang, takes a train, it's kind of a weird book. It's kind of a memoir. She takes a train trip across America and visits places where like famous writers who were alcoholics drank and got sober. And so it's sort of about these five it's like Hemingway, Raymond Carver, John Berryman. It's all men, I think, mm-hmm. um, because they have sort of the more dramatic stories. And um, it's just incredible. And the thing I loved about it is that several of them actually get sober. Like John Cheever, who, oh my God, mm-hmm. if, if John Cheever can get sober, like anyone can do it. <laughs> um, anyone. And it just felt so good to see like the peace that they achieved and Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Raymond Carver and how much more work he did after he, he got sober. And again, he's one where you're like, wow, how did, like, if he could manage to, to quit, like who, who couldn't? Um, and, and I think reading that book just really helped me to start getting a look at like how painful it was for these people and how, how much more productive and, and creative they got on the other side of it. Right. I also think um, Leslie Jameson did a good job 
of that too. And the recovering when she, um, you know, included a lot of stories of, of, of different, um, creatives in her book. She did. Yeah. She, some of the same ones. And then also I think like, um, Billie Holiday. Yeah. Billie Holiday. That's right. Mm -hmm. Who was a heroin addict. I thought she did a great, a great job on that too. I think that part of the book was her, was actually her PhD thesis and which she wrote while she was still drinking. Um, Wow. And it's like she was trying to explore that world for herself to check it out before she joined it or something. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. I loved that, that book. I, it was sort of a weird book. Like it's like three books mashed together. It way. was three <laughs> books mashed together, but God, it was so good. It was so, so good. She, um, I actually, she ended up blurbing my book. I got, I pulled some strings, like a friend did a favor and introduced me to her PR agent and he's just a doll. And he, he said, sure, I'll, I'll get a galley to her. And then another friend invited me to a private reception here in Seattle where she was speaking. And I was standing in line and she saw me and she got up and hugged me and said, Christy, I loved your fucking book. That's awesome. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Perfect. <laughs> she knows who I am. Yeah, she's the first <laughs> quote on your back cover. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then she ended up writing me this lovely blurb that was much, much more formal, but she is also, I recognized her right away because she like me is like, was a, I call it a level grinder. You know, it's like a term from gaming. Like I'm just going to grind up through these levels. She was a rule follower and a level grinder. I mean, if you read that book, it's kind of astonishing. Like she's has this terrible drinking problem, but at the same time, she's like, and then I was at Yale, and then I was at this exactly <laughs> right. She accomplished lots of things. High functioning, yeah. yes, totally high functioning. Absolutely. I almost wanted her to go more into that. I was like, this is like part of it. I think is you know a certain amount of privilege, and so things just come easier to you. But um, but I was like, that there's a story here. Like, how does someone achieve mm-hmm. the way that she's achieving? And I mean, I achieved in some ways at the same level in different areas while drinking like that. And I do think it has something to do with the mindset that's like, I will accomplish things no matter what. Mm-hmm. Because you said so, right? Yeah, because yeah. I said so. And then the drinking becomes a way to kind of, um, or the accomplishment for me became a way to cover up the shame from drinking. So it all feeds each other, but it's not necessarily in a very good way. Right. It's like presenting well it almost tricks mm-hmm. you. It, it, it's a, it's like a form of trickery mm-hmm. keeps mm-hmm. you in that denial. Yeah, that you you have to fool people and fool yourself. Um, Jan, this writer, I don't know if she's ever been on your show, but Janelle Hanchett. Mm-hmm. Um, she has. Okay, yeah, she was posted something on Facebook the other day, saying people will ask her things like, "Oh, did your children have fetal alcohol syndrome?" Or, you know, did you ever live in your car or things like that? And she was like, you guys have to understand, like, addicts don't always look like you think they're going to. She right. said, no, I was going to grad school and I was married and no, my children don't. I was sober during my pregnancies. And, um, you know, I think that's, that's something people don't understand is, you know, I was at the worst of my drinking I was holding successful at a job that paid me like in the low mid six figures, you know, I was traveling around the world. Like it did not, I did not look like what people think of when they think of an addict and I was totally an addict. Right. Exactly. They're sitting next to you in the business meeting and they're, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I love when people are like, "Well, you didn't. You weren't. You're not really addicted. <laughs> right. You weren't really addicted because we drank. We drank the same." And I'm like, mm, mm, "Interesting. I'm just gonna <laughs> check my judgment right now." And walk yeah, away. 
I was going to put, <laughs> yeah, because, uh, yeah, we, I mean, maybe you can handle it. Maybe your body processes it differently, but I definitely, definitely had a problem for sure. And you're the one who gets to decide too. I mean, yeah. I've, I've met women who never drank more than two glasses of wine a day who decided they were addicts. And my, you know, my own first impulse was like, what? <laughs> but then I was like, well, for them, that was, that's addiction. I mean, yeah. I would have been thrilled, but, um, that yeah, but it, could have figured it out at two glasses for sure. Yeah, it would have been yeah, a gift. Yeah, this yeah. one woman said, I had to have it. And I, so I knew that I was addicted. And, um, and I mean, that's amazing that she could, that someone can figure that out. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I'll go to book club meetings and there's always like someone in the room who's like, but you weren't that bad. I mean, you didn't, you didn't have a DUI. You didn't, you know, you weren't in the hospital. And it's almost like you're not, allowed to quit drinking unless something incredibly dire happens to you that's public right and and the women i mean yeah i was in part of a book club that everybody affectionately called a drunk club yeah and you know we live in wine country i owned a wine bar and everybody brought a bottle everybody drank a bottle and then more was brought out and we drove home so it was like i do have to stay in my lane and i yeah. have to quit that book club eventually yeah um, i stayed in it when i was sober christy and it was hard <laughs> I bet that was hard, especially with that much, that much drinking going on. Like I'm fine being around people who are having a glass of wine or whatever, but, um, but yeah, if there were that much of it and it was probably good wine too. You guys are from wine country. <laughs> Everyone knows their stuff. <laughs> but it gave me the opportunity to, um, to practice some things like practice mm -hmm. a curfew for myself is what I did. And I practiced uh, being the DD for people that wanted to leave at my curfew time. And if they oh, did yeah. fine, mm -hmm. it helped me practice being in a room with people that were drinking, um, that kind of knew my deal, even though no one talked about it, not one person, <laughs> oh, that's interesting. About it. but I, you know, I would bring my tea and whatever, mm -hmm. but it was, in it, it was a safer place for me to practice that stuff. So I'm really grateful for that. But at some point I was like, I'm done. Like, yeah. Anymore. Like it was just too, it was too much. That was one thing that was good for me early on was I had, I gave myself permission and I'm sure I learned this from someone online, but to leave an, an yeah. event when I needed to. And I was working in publishing at the time, which is, is pretty drunk. <laughs> and, um, and I remember I had to go to this big event at the Chihuly Gardens here in Seattle and it was really beautiful and, you know, it's glamorous and people were just loaded mm. and I would, um, go to the restroom when I felt like I needed to. And I had my New York Times crossword puzzle app on my phone. <laughs> and I was like, you can do a puzzle here. Cause I'm a, I'm a fat, if it's an, e if it's like a, a Tuesday or Wednesday puzzle, I can do it in five minutes. And, and I was just like, you are, you're allowed to do that. And, and I cut out, you know, as soon as I, as I could. And it was just like, it's like building a muscle you, know, you have to practice, then your muscle gets sore because that's how you build a muscle. Yeah. Um, I just made a little metaphor. <laughs> that was great. That was a good one. <laughs> hey, Unruffled listeners, just popping in mid-show to remind you about our Patreon fundraising campaign. To date, we have produced almost two years worth of content and have over half a million downloads. We can hardly believe it. If you like what you've been hearing and appreciate our weekly consistency, you can be a patron of this show for as little as a dollar an episode. To donate, please go to patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. Thank you for your continued support of the show. Now back to it. You know, when you were saying how, how women ask you, you know, were you, you didn't seem that bad or whatever, you know, yeah. I, that's how I, 
that's what kept me drinking though. I was constantly yeah. comparing myself to others around me. That's how I would check my temperature. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Like if they're, Oh, I'm not as bad as that. It kept me going. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I didn't have a lot of like public scenes. I, you know, I would, yeah. And I, I definitely compared myself and used that as kind of an excuse. And, and I mean, as I wrote about in my book, I felt like my soul was dying. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's worse than a, that's way worse than a DUI. Um, you know, that's pretty, I mean, not that that's not a lot of trouble too, but I mean, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Same. But my, I tell you, my soul had to die for a long time though, before I acknowledged that was a feeling that, that was making me miserable. Yeah. It takes a while to notice it even, whereas like a DUI is kind of slap in the face. You're like, Oh, look at this. I'm in handcuffs. Like maybe my life needs to change. But, um, yeah, it's like a realization for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But there is this, this need, I think of some, some women who meet me to say, um, you know, oh, I, I just, I just don't know. It just didn't seem that bad. And, and, you know, I try not to judge, but if someone's that adamant that I didn't have a problem, then, I mean, that's about them, not me. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah, this is not like a pissing contest. Or anything. Right. The other thing is it doesn't have to be that bad. Some people just decide they just, they're like, eh, I don't, I don't know if this is adding anything to my life. Like you could just stop just the way some yeah. people, you know, stop eating red meat or something. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't always have to be that big a deal. Although it was for me. Right. For sure. Well, I wanted to ask Christy, because I do want to talk about the book. I know Sandra wants to talk about your book, um, but I wanted to back up a tiny bit to just um, maybe give us a jumping off point from, uh, I know you've done lots of writing and you are a writer, but from your Anjali ep- um, essay that um, kind of went viral. Yeah, I Kind of. Went viral. That was in the summer of 2016, right? June, yeah, that, yep, that was, wow, God, it was yeah. like three years ago. Yeah, not quite. Or yes. July, maybe July on me. It was July. It was yeah. like, it was like late, late July, I think. Well, it was perfect because it was summer when it released. And that yeah. essay, I have to ask you from a practice, I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit, like if you could chat about just so that they understand kind of what mm-hmm. the essay was about. But um, how long did it take you to write that essay? I think about six weeks. And mm-hmm. When I say that, it's of course, you know, you're coming back to it and moving away. And yeah. Um, I and the way that it came about is I had been working with um actually a woman I'd known for 15 years, um, who I worked with uh here in Seattle at Amazon, and she had left and was um working as a literary agent and had said, I think you, there's a book in this stuff for you. And so we've been putting together a proposal and one day she said, you know, we have all this great material here, but have you thought about like writing something that would showcase like anger? Because we wanted to show publishers like a, a, ra- a range of voice. And, and I was like, huh, I guess I could try that. It was like this beautiful day in Seattle. I was feeling really good. And I was like, anger, I don't know. And um, went home and started working on this essay. And I was like, oh, I'm really, really angry. Look at that. <laughs> and, um, and it was it initially it was like two essays kind of smushed into one, like it was much bigger and it just wasn't working. And she read it and said, you know, I think this is two pieces and you should peel them apart. I'm trying to remember if anything ever happened with the the other half of it. It's probably on my, my hard drive somewhere. Um, So I 
worked on it and worked on it. And for uh, listeners who don't know, it's, it's set mostly during the first summer that I was sober. And I've been sober three years, almost three years at that point. And it's about how I realized that booze was everywhere I looked, just way beyond the places you would think it was, like um, everywhere at work, at like manicure parlors, at yoga, <laughs> there was wine tasting. So it, I couldn't escape it. And I was sober and I was surrounded in it. And also that it was women especially who were not only drinking a lot, but really being encouraged to drink as a marker of feminism. Um, or empowerment, the same way that Virginia Slim cigarettes, mm-hmm. dating myself, but were a, a feminist signifier, um, right. even though they they just actually literally kill people, and um, and about how I it was almost kind of a rallying cry for not that every woman should quit drinking, but that we're asked to put up with so much as women, and drinking is just keeping us complacent. Um, right where they want us. <laughs> um, and, uh, and the more I worked on it, the more I was like, yeah, this is really wild. Like, like all this drinking, we're fooling ourselves and thinking that if we can, that the, the fact that we can go out in public and, and get drunk means that we've made it. And meanwhile, I don't think things are so great um, for women in a lot of ways. And there was some material in the essay about how, you know, I was on a panel at work and someone asked what it was like to be a woman at the company. And I was the only woman on the panel. So I naively thought that was <laughs> Yes, that was for me. <laughs> I'm, I could feel that one. And I gave a very diplomatic response. And, um, and then all three men on the panel said, no, actually, here's what it's like to be a woman. Oh, I loved that part <laughs> of the I know. Easy. <laughs> and, um, and, and not even like about I'm benefits. Just I'm just shaking my head right now. <laughs> yeah. Like here's how it feels. And, 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 um, and it's funny, that moment was maybe the start of a lot of things for me. Like I'd never, I don't even know if the word mansplaining had been coined yet, or I did, certainly didn't know it. It wasn't in common right. use. This is like six years ago, but it was like literally disagreeing with something that they could could not it would be like me saying what it's like to be black right um, it's like a virgin trying to describe sex or something exactly yeah, right like if I, if I said well here's what it's like to be black somebody would hopefully smack me upside the head right um and yeah <laughs> <laughs> so anyway long way of saying that's how that that's how that essay came about um she said could you express anger and I said oh I don't know I'll see <laughs> and then six weeks yeah. later I was like here <laughs> I can't. I've expressed. <laughs> Definitely can't. Well, so I listened to you reading it on um, themedium.com. Oh, yeah. yeah. Medium.com. And so if our listeners want to listen to it or to read it, you can find it on Medium, right? And That's on right. your website? Yeah. Yeah. So it's called Anjali. And that, that's, that song, I remember that song so well. That oh, I ad, so remember ad. that. Yeah. That, as a matter of fact, I feel like that we had some kind of back and forth, Christy, on uh, Facebook, one, probably the group and I, I mm-hmm. one of our groups, and I think I mentioned um, Anjali and it was before, it was while you were working on it, I think, because you said, oh, I'm wow. actually working on something right <laughs> now about that commercial. And it was just, you know, one of those that's things. That's <laughs> I, I was so into that commercial as a kid. It just seemed so glamorous. Oh, yeah. You know, and I, right, I wasn't it? Like, 
I just think, oh boy, you really, I mean, it's this idea that basically I'm going to work all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the whole, you know, it was the whole having it all thing where it was like, you can have it all. And also you should have it all, which is very different. And um, do it all. And do it all. Again, having it all was doing it all. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so it was funny to go back and, and I love having the internet, you know, I could go find it and, 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 and watch it. And I thought, yeah, this really messed me up. <laughs> this, this commercial really, I like to think of myself as being impervious to like, oh, well, I don't believe the things in media and blah, blah, blah. But I mean, you know, good Lord, this is a glamorous, beautiful woman. I was eight years old. Like, of course I was, I was thrilled by that. I thought this, this is how I want to be. Well, how, how we're marketed to as women. I mean, it, it is very calculated. Um, yeah. I know your essay came out after I did a, a term paper in the spring of 2016 that I used a, a lot of Anne Dowsett Johnston's work, but right. she did talk a lot about, you know, you know, the first, but I, I did my research, the first female winemaker was at Robert Mondavi's mm -hmm. and, um, or at Mondavi Winery and just how they were putting women in the grocery store and how they she were. called it the pinking, right? The pinking. The yeah. pinking, right, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And just that whole idea that, um, in the eighties, right. That, that, that we deserved it. We earned it. We yeah. earned Chardonnay at lunch and to be like yeah. the men. And I don't know, it just was this, it was eerie because you could see it in, in TV shows. You see it in just how it just slowly started becoming that that's what to have made it right have arrived was right. to have a bottle of Chardonnay at lunch. Yeah. And, and it's <laughs> so strange. I mean, like I, even at the worst of my drinking, like if I had been drinking wine at lunch, like I, I don't know. To me, it's just, it's, when I see that stuff on television, it's incredibly unrealistic. So unrealistic. Um, Cause I never stopped after that, yeah. after the wine lunch, I never right. stopped. And if I did, I would have to go home and go to sleep. Exactly. In fact, I, I rarely drank during the day at all because it would just make me feel so lousy. And I just, unless I kept drinking and I had enough mm -hmm. sort of, I had it together enough to know I couldn't do that. So, um, when I see, or like the, I haven't watched a ton of scandal, but I know the whole thing is, oh, people love her giant glass of red wine that she always has or, or, oh, my personal hero, Tammy Taylor from Friday Night Lights. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. um, who Chardonnay. I love, but like she always <laughs> had a glass of white wine. That was like her thing. Like yeah. it was attached to her hand. We're um, watching that right now with my son. Yes. Every, so every Friday night, she's got a glass of Chardonnay always <laughs> or whatever she's drinking. Yeah. It's, oh, that show is so good. I mean, mm -hmm. the fact that it's a, a football show and I loved it, you know, I was, I was not the person who was going to love the show and it's just so incredible. It's so well-written. But um, yeah, it just seemed, and I thought back initially the essay was going to include something about the flappers because I, I did a little research and the fact that they were drinking and smoking was, you know, it was an act of rebellion and I get it. The fact that women in the nineties were going out and smoking cigars and, and drinking cosmopolitans, you know, like hard liquor was an act of rebellion. And, but those acts of rebellion are kind of like, it's really trying to be like men instead of just trying to be ourselves Mm -hmm. as individuals and maybe our natural selves are more masculine maybe they're not but it was kind of like taking this this masculine archetype of we'll just drink and smoke and and saying well if they do it maybe maybe we should do it too and I don't know I don't necessarily want to do things the way that men do them no no yeah because I think we can hang on to that rebelliousness um, yeah 
real yeah. rebelliousness may take so many different forms. I mean, um, I think sobriety is rebellious because it really, I mean, it seems to bother people a lot <laughs> when you're sober. So. Totally. Yeah. I feel so much stronger and it does feel like this subversive act. You know, mm -hmm. I have a, I have a young sponsee and she's always like, it's punk rock. It's punk rock to be so exactly. <laughs> yes. You are. Well, it's like when I was a teenager, I was, I was really into punk and there were the boys who were straight edge. Uh -huh. um, I totally remember the straight edge. Yeah. Kids. And they were, and I remember I just did not understand them at all. Like at all. <laughs> that was really weird because it normally wasn't people who, I mean, it was just guys who just, it's not like they were in recovery. They just didn't drink, you know, or use drugs or anything. Right. And I just thought, well, that's, that's really strange. And now I'm like, that was, that's really cool. I mean, that's really kind of punk rock. And yeah. um, they were making sobriety cool. Mm, right. Yeah. Which is hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is going to, this is going to bring up your book now, mm -hmm. uh, which is called nothing good can come from this. You guys, if you have not picked up Christie's book yet. Um, you talk a lot about specialness in your book and, but it's got me thinking like, okay, so if everybody gets sober, am I still going to feel special? Right. <laughs> Do you ever think about that? <laughs> that is so funny. Oh my God. I might, if, if that many people got sober, I probably would have to figure out, like I wouldn't start drinking again, but I bet I'd be like, well, I need to do something else. Right. It's time to pivot. <laughs> I'm going to get extra sober. Um, <laughs> yeah, I did have this thing and, and there's an essay, I actually read this at a reading in Seattle last week about like how as a teenager, it was very important to me to feel like not mainstream. I mean, mm -hmm. I was one of those kids. Um, and I do like that sobriety, like I heard Sarah Heppola refer to it as a, an act of dissidence. And I was like, you know, it is, it's, it's a way of just really going against the grain. Right now I'm kind of at a point where I'm really thrilled that there seems to be this growing interest in sobriety. And I know uh, teenagers and young people are drinking less. They're I, I suspect they're probably just smoking more pot, but um, I suspect, yeah, you know, it's, it's legal so many places now, but, but they're drinking less. And, um, but yeah, I suppose if it came to the point where it was just like, well, no one does this anymore, then I have to start body modification or something. <laughs> <laughs> God forbid. We're, we're, all, we're all or nothing still. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta go to the extremes. Uh, well, we got to hear you read your book when we were down at She Recovers. We got to see you sitting by a pool at the Beverly Hilton. That's right. Writing and you're getting in applications. I took a huge header at that pool. Oh, you did? Yeah. It was early one morning. I, oh, um, that's right. You're, okay, go ahead. Oh my God. I just slipped and... Um, yeah, I just bit it. I just absolutely bit it. My knee actually was sore until about a month ago. Oh God. <laughs> so oh, terrible. God. And I was sober. <laughs> yeah. And well, you were surrounded. I just kept thinking like you were just surrounded at this beautiful pool. I was thinking of your Anjali essay. Mm -hmm. You're surrounded, but now it's with all of these sober people. Yeah. It was kind of amazing because I think most of the people at the pool, I think it was a lot of them were women there for the conference. And, um, it really did feel good. It was so peaceful. Mm -hmm. um, people were just reading and talking and there was no like screeching and howling, <laughs> you know, it was, it was just kind of, it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody falling over into the pool and right. getting crazy. And yeah. That's why yeah. I thought it was kind of funny that I, uh, that I took a header because um, 
I was like, you know, like you just can't keep it together. Stone cold Ever. sober. <laughs> uh, well, it was so great to see you there. And then I was thinking too, I mean, um, when we went to your reading that night um, and to be just to have a world where you get to hang out with ladies who admire your work, what, people who admire your work yeah. and to be sober and to feel like it's like this magic bubble. It, it does that you're feel traveling, like that. you know? Yeah. It's, it's sort of amazing. And that was, I think my book had only been out a few weeks at that point. So I was just starting to, and my head was kind of spinning. Um, but even now, you know, I'll, I did this reading in Seattle last week and there were several people, I think they were all women who came up to me afterwards and said, Oh, you know, I've been sober since, uh, one woman said she'd been thinking about quitting drinking and she picked my book just happened to come out that week and she bought it and she stopped drinking Wow! About six months over five months over. Um, people will tell me that all the time. And it's, um, it's like, it's almost impossible to actually take in. Yeah. Um, because obviously like they made that decision and, but I also know, you know, I think about things that influence me and, and just writers or artists who have influenced my life in huge ways. And, it's profound. Like you feel like you have a profound connection with those people. So um, I feel like I didn't write the book to make people stop drinking. No, but, but it's kind of amazing that people have actually found something they can relate to in it. And that's what I hear over and over is they found it relatable to their circumstances. Um, as usually, you know, people who are professionals who, who maybe haven't hit that dramatic bottom and the book is telling them that, you know, you, you don't have to, you could just, you could just stop because you're really unhappy. <laughs> yeah. Well, your humor is so, so fantastic too, Christine Thank you. comes through. It's so smart and witty. And so I think it's digestible for, for people to read too, you know, and they can go, oh, yeah, I get it. I get what I, she's doing here. <laughs> I wanted it to be fun. I, I didn't, um, I, I wanted it to reflect my voice and I wrote it primarily as, as a first, you know, as a writer, as a first book, I wanted to establish here's, here's who I am. Um, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, I didn't want people to think that it had to be all earnest all the time or that they would have to lose their edge if they got sober. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that that's what was so, so appealing about your book too, that it's not just like quit lit or, you know, I was right. terrible and now I found God and yeah. Right. But yeah, yeah. You, you wove in all the things that, that, that interests you, that you like. You talked a lot about music, which I loved that. And yeah, um, I'd love to write a whole book about music. <laughs> I bet you could get that published. The kind of music I love, but um, yeah, I wanted it to be like a portrait of a person. And um, I was really influenced by Blackout by Sarah Heppel's book because she mm -hmm. spends, I think, probably a good third of the book is after she quits drinking, and. I read the book. I was sober when it came out. I think I'd been sober like, I don't know, a few months. And I read it and I thought, oh, I love this part of the book. This is, I, I want to read about sobriety. And um, I later heard an interview with her where she said, yeah, people don't like that part of my book. <laughs> they, they tell me they want more of the, the drinking episodes. Mm, they want the drunk log yeah, yeah. A lot of people do want the drunk log And yeah, Tammy and I talk about um, that a lot because our podcast, what we're doing here, we like to focus on, on thriving and sobriety, Yeah, less focus on the drunk log and, but there's lots of people that do. So people, people love the drunk log. And 
I, my drunkalog just wasn't that interesting. So I knew if I tried to make a book out of it, um, it would just be like anyone else's book who's sort of like me. And, and I love Sarah Heppel's whole book, but her drunkalog too. I mean, it was kind of like, yep, professional white woman drinks a lot, has sex with a lot of guys. I mean, it wasn't that unusual. Mm -hmm. And when she got into the sobriety part, I was like, this felt new to me. So I thought, well, I don't want to write the same book everyone else is writing. And mostly I didn't want to bore myself. Like if I just had to write about my, my drunk years, I would have been so bored. And like, why would you, like, I don't want to write a I don't want to bore myself with my own book. <laughs> like that is not good. Yeah. So I just wanted to focus on the, what is, what is sobriety like? And especially even beyond that, but like, what would it, I wanted the reader to be able to think about anything that they thought they couldn't live without, that they had to give up. Mm-hmm. And what would your life be like after that? You know, mm-hmm. if it's sugar, if it's drugs, sex, um, you're suddenly left without the one thing you thought you would always have. And like, what do you do? Yeah. Sarah Heppel's book was the book that primed me to go into the rooms. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I was six months sober. And when I read it, um, I was either going to drink, mm-hmm. <laughs> plotting and figuring out how at seven months I could drink because mm-hmm. um, I'd you know, done it long enough. Um, and clearly I didn't have a problem. Right. Um, but at the end of the book, I loved how she talked about sponsoring a woman. I was like, what, wait, wait, what's happening here? What, what's yeah. <laughs> right. And, and um, when someone suggested I go, I didn't fully know what they were talking about. I didn't understand. It was called a 12 step meeting, but anyhow, but I knew enough from reading that book and I was like, I'm going to give it a try. Yeah. What do I got to lose? You know, yeah. I'm feeling pretty miserable and I know what the alternative will be. Right. So it was really helpful to read that at the end of her book and to kind of, you know, yeah, to go start the path and go, okay, well, I'll figure it out for myself from here, but at least yeah. to know that it could be done. And give it a shot. And it's like, it's an hour of your life, right? It's kind of yeah. like, what, what's the harm? Like if you go and it doesn't resonate with you, then okay. You, you still had a new experience. Well, and, and for me, it's like with anything in sobriety, I, you know, I feel like, um, it opens me up just to try anything Yeah, that even things I've, I've had prejudgments of, um, I'm willing to try now. Same. And if I it doesn't work, if it doesn't work out, great. I've tried it. I'll try something else. Yeah. I, I was really into trying new things. Um, when I first got sober, well, part of it's you have all this time and I was like, well, I don't know what to do. And, um, so I, you know, I think I took a couple class, I took a glass blowing workshop. That was terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> like yeah. minute, there's like a 10 minute intro and then they're like, okay, cool. here's well, a blow torch. I was like, are you serious? <laughs> well, Christy, you know, Dale Chihuly has an eye patch on, so you know, it's a dangerous exactly. thing. <laughs> I mean, I was like, ah. <laughs> and it was funny. I was with people at, from my work and like, they were all making these beautiful little objects because they give us a goal. It was like to make this tiny vase and then they would fire it. And, and, and I mean, I just had, it was hopeless. It was like, I was like the special <laughs> kid who just couldn't do anything, but it was fun. And, um, and I tried bouldering, which is basically like mm. low rock climbing with no ropes. And, um, oh and it was kind of neat. So I haven't done either one since, but I was like, well, these are things that I hadn't done before. And like, they were kind of fun. And I just became aware that there was this whole world full of activities that people do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Whether or not 
when they're not drinking or if they don't have a drinking problem, like they have other interests in their, in their life and, and, uh, had to figure it out. And, and I think that, you know, when I went to my first meeting, um, I was terrified. Like I, mm-hmm. I think back now I was shaking, like I was so scared and I was a year and a half sober and mm-hmm. I've only been to a couple since. Um, partly so I don't think I found a meeting that gels for me, although that's, it probably doesn't really matter, but uh, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to going to this conference in Portland and there's on-site, um, there's on-site 12 step meetings every day where the like 4% of writers who aren't drinking can go. And, um, I don't have any fear anymore. I just feel like, yeah, you just walk into a room. What's the big deal? Um, if you have a good time, you have a good time. If you get something out of it, you do. If you don't, whatever, it's it's an hour of your life. Right. Yeah. It's scary at first. Yeah. Um, Christy, I wanted to, there's something in your book, um, in the chapter shadow life that mm-hmm. I just wanted to mention. Cause I, I highlighted it when I was reading it and it really, really spoke to me. And there's so much in here because this is a book of essays. So each one, it can transport you if you're reading them mm-hmm. and you talked about your dad. Yeah. And there was a, I'm just going to read a short bit here. It mm-hmm. said, um, he didn't know how to talk to me like a child. So instead he would ask, who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. He would repeat it until he got an answer, his voice getting higher and more strained each time. I never knew what to say. I mean, who knows who they are at two years old or four or seven. The best I ever came up with was just a girl or a person. My answer didn't really matter anyway. That really hit my heart, Christy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my dad used to say that to me. Wow. And he still does. Who does she think she is? Oh, my God. We're estranged for like 16 years. But anyhow, okay. <laughs> That's but awesome. when I read that, I just, I felt you and I felt yeah. that little girl, you know, being asked that. And I wondered, you know, do you know who you are now? Are you getting there? I'm getting there. Yeah. I know I'm someone who would not tolerate being asked that question. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know enough to know that. Yes. Yeah. 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 It was, you know, I think that I, you know, I think I look back and like my parents, like they love me and they, in, in a lot of ways they did things right. Like, you know, materially, like I finished my education with no debt. I mean, you know, they, they, they really did their best for me, but, but I think that emotionally they just were not ready to have children. Mm-hmm. And then they had me and I was hyperverbal, hyper articulate. And I think it just really freaked them out. And, um, and so they found me really, and I think I kind of became like the family scapegoat, you know, and they found me really frustrating. And my father would just be so frustrated with me. Um, and I, when I was writing that almost could feel what it was like to be in his body. Just so like, who is this, like, who is this person that I have to deal with? Mm. And, um, but yeah, looking back, I remember there was a core of like rebellion in me that I think saved my life because I think a lot of little girls being asked that question, you can end up kind of crumbling. And I guess, I mean, I did become an alcoholic (laughs) many years later, (laughs) but um, so maybe, maybe I didn't survive so well, but there was something in me that was just like, you need to just, even at the age of eight, I was thinking you need to just bide your time because you're getting out of here. Mm, Um, And and you're, you're not going to have to, put up with this kind of thing anymore. Um, I've never asked him, I've never talked to him about what that was all about. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I just don't think it would be productive. I think he tends to shut down when any kind of emotion comes up. So I've just sort of let it go. Yeah. You, you did a really beautiful job of talking about your parents. And that yeah, must have been hard to do. You know? it, it was. I wanted to be honest, but also, you know, when you're writing memoir, it's, it's never interesting if it's a story of victimization. Um, you always have to, and, and I mean, people do write beautiful memoirs about when mm-hmm. they have been victims in, you know, a situation. But when it's only about victimization and not about your development as a person or your own complicity in a certain situation, like it's just not as good a book. And so I, I wanted to make sure that this wasn't just another, oh, poor me, you know, my parents didn't understand me book. And I also wanted to acknowledge that, you know, they're, they're, they're decent people who did their best, who just had some problems. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, that for me has been, and I, and I see this all the time, you know, it's a, it's one of the gifts of recovery is that you, you can look back at whatever trauma you think you had or something Mm -hmm. that you suffered over and say, well, you know what they, 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 maybe they were doing the best they could. They, you know, I mean, my dad was unmedicated and and should have been, and, you know, just never worked on himself. Yeah. I look back and, you know, my mother was, um, I think also unmedicated and should have been, and, um, and, you know, a really smart woman in the seventies who maybe probably would have been happier having a career. Um, you know, not necessarily not having kids, but, but, but some way to do both. And, you know, I can have more compassion. I also have more compassion for myself. Right. Um, I think I did internalize a lot of that guilt and felt like the family, the source of the family's problems for a long time, which is one thing that drove my hyperachievement in like all other areas. Um, cause that's how I get approval, you know, by getting good grades and, and things like that. Um, but, but yeah, I can look back and just kind of have compassion for everyone involved and be like, oh my God, we were so unhappy. Like everybody in the family was just so miserable and had no idea how to get through to each other. And that was true of me as a six-year-old, as much as my parents as 30-somethings. Yeah. And that perspective in recovery, like that's where we get it, it kind of shifts and changes. Mm-hmm. And I can accept now, yeah, that maybe yeah. he could, wasn't capable of of what he wasn't capable of. And so it's interesting. It's, um, it sounds really, I don't know, like I'm boiling it down and it's going to sound kind of cliche, but it's just like, he couldn't, yeah, he was doing the best he could. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just like, I'm sure there's ways that I am disappointing people in my life now and I'm, and I'm doing the best I can. I mean, we, you know, we all, we all are just falling short in some way because who set the standard, you know, we're just, we're doing what we can. Oh yeah. I mean, I say it all the time, but I'm totally prepared to pay for my children's future therapy. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not college. They need to get scholarships, but yeah. (laughs) You're like, I'm going to pay for this somehow. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I just, I love that question now, Christy, because yeah, I ask it to myself, who do you think you are? And it's in a way different tone Mm -hmm. and I can remind myself who I am and I can remind myself what I'm doing and I can remind myself in recovery, like, I like this version of me way better and the anxiety is way less. (laughs) It's like, I know who I am now. I don't know how to articulate it even to myself, but but I have a sense of self, um, Mm -hmm. much bold. You know, I, I always thought alcohol made me brave or made me bold, but I'm much more at ease in my own skin 
I'm much bolder now that I don't I think, think it's getting I, older too, right? Yeah, I think yeah. that helps. That yeah, really does help. I agree. You just get to the point where you're like, you know, there's certain things I'm not going to put up with. You know, they talk about how um, there's all these theories that like women in perimenopause and menopause get more bold or more aggressive because of hormones. But I also think it's just like 50 years of being on this planet. Right. Um, and just being like, you know what? I am not going to, I'm not, why would I put up with some of this stuff anymore? I, I, I'm sure that there is, I mean, hormones are real, but, but I think it's, that's so individual and it's such an easy thing to slap on like, well, all women, like we're always, our behavior is like always. Like we're being, guided by our hormones. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. That's bullshit. <laughs> It's just that I'm not going to put up with your shit anymore. Right. It's just, it's just that I finally, like, I stepped out of the matrix, <laughs> the patriarchy and I've had it. And yeah, maybe I don't have as much estrogen on my body or, you know, it's a caretaking hormone, but I mean, also like, who knows? Like you can't look at any given woman and say like, well, does she have estrogen in her body? You know, I think it's just anger. I think women just get angry because they should be. And, um, or they have every right to be. And, and you're just like, well, I don't really need to like pretend I'm not mad. Anymore. Exactly. I don't need an excuse of hormones. I'm just right. mad. <laughs> I'm just mad. My hormones are fine. <laughs> oh, well, um, yeah, I, I think I'm looking at the time I could talk to you forever, Christine. <laughs> Can you tell our listeners maybe what you're working on now? I know you can't talk about it explicitly, but I, we yeah. know that you're working on a new book. Yeah, I am working on a new book. It'll be a memoir. Um, I never planned to be a memoirist. It's funny. I was going to be a novelist. Um, <laughs> maybe someday that will happen. Um, I, um, you know, I've had a really interesting fairly high powered corporate career doing like a lot of kind of cool stuff. And, and I started thinking about how I've always been ambitious and I've always loved to work. It was always sort of assumed that I would work, you know, and, and what it's like to be an ambitious woman. Um, the world doesn't really like ambitious women. It's like, I remember hearing data about poll data showing that people with Hillary Clinton, people loved her when she was in a job. Like they loved her as a senator, they loved her as secretary of state, but when she was like asking for those jobs, they didn't like her. Mm. Uh, her poll numbers would go down because she was saying, oh, I'm ambitious. And then once she was in the job, they were just like, oh yeah, this seems fine. Um, and, and I just started been thinking about things like that and like what it's been like to be a woman who's ambitious and how you're really meant to be. And I was also in a highly male dominated environment um, at work for 12 years and how you're really asked to walk a very fine line between being you have to be just the right amount of female right <laughs> like if you if you act too much like a woman they don't trust you um because they're like oh she's different that's other and then if you act too much like a man they don't trust you <laughs> because then they can't identify you with like their mom or their wife or their sister. Um, and so I'm, I'm writing a memoir about what it's like, just the ambition, you know, what, what, what ambition is like in a woman and, um, you know, creative ambition and career ambition, financial ambition, it can mean anything. And I think I'm hoping it'll resonate with, with a lot of women or just people who have wanted to do big things. You know, we, we think of women as even in terms of women's art, as being very focused on the domestic, which by the way is great. Like there's no reason, 
why do we think of big things as better and small things as, as lesser? And, and also, is the domestic actually small? I think it encompasses all of life. But, um, but when a woman tries to do something kind of big and giant and, and crazy sounding, we, we tend to judge her really harshly. So I'm writing about that. And I've also been writing about, um, about sex some. I have a couple essays coming out that will sort of deal with this idea of women's sexual empowerment and um, how you know we've been fed a lot of ideas about with female desire and things like that that aren't I don't think are necessarily true mm-hmm. yeah so kind of you know these are all I mean everything I write is in some way related to sobriety but these these things you know the experiences in my life came out of that but but they aren't explicitly about about drinking mm. um Sarah Heppola did that good uh, that um uh, series in Jezebel where she touched yes. on like uh, consent and yes I loved that I want to I want her to write a whole book about that I do too I think it's such a huge topic and that was really inspiring to me because when I hear with all the debate about like frat parties and, and girls drinking um I'm so tired of all the like, well, why was she drinking? And she wouldn't have gotten raped if she wasn't drinking. She got raped because she was in the room with a rapist. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I also, when I see these young women, sometimes I want to shake them and say, you need to keep your wits about you. Oh yeah. Um, because I look back and say, would I, I mean, on all 90% of my sexual experiences yeah. in my 20s, I, I ask myself, would I have, would I have done that if I were, if I were, were you know, because I felt like, you know, it was my sexual prowess and I was right. proud of it. Right. You know, and it was but my I had choice. To drink myself into it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it gets into that weird gray area where it's kind of like things I consented to. I mean, I would never look back and say, oh, I was even coerced. Occasionally you'd be kind of guilted into something, but let's face it, like I have, I would have had no compun- no problem. Like I could have walked away from any of those situations. But um, but I think she said something like, when you have to drink yourself into consent, um, that's not good. That doesn't necessarily mean that you were the victim of a crime or even of abuse, but you may be abusing yourself. Right. Um, you, Cause you definitely may have made a different choice. If you yeah. And so I do want to tell you women sometimes like, and it's very hard to do this without sounding like one of the, the people who's like, you shouldn't drink because you'll get raped. Exactly. But it's more like the world we live in is a rape culture. It's terrible. It's not changing fast enough. And it could be, you know, you could be saving your own life just by drinking less or, you know, something like that. Um, so I, thought she was so brave to bring those things up and, and in a way that's not dogmatic. It's not like, well, if you drink and then you have sex, you're being raped because there's a very wide spectrum. And I I think she also should read a whole book about it. Do it, Sarah. Although I think she's, I also read somewhere, she said she's kind of moving away. She has another big topic now and I forgot what it is. It's interesting, but it's not about drinking. It's not anything about, right, right. I think she got, she's like, I've done that. You know, she (laughs) Feels like well, she's earned the right to move on. I might have to email her again because I never heard back from her person, her publicist. So I will. Oh yeah, I will do that again and just good. Like, well, <laughs> one more question about your new work: Is it going to be an essay format, or do you know that yet? I don't think it will be. I think it's going to be a straightforward memoir, um, but it'll sort of be. Um, so one of my favorite books is Poser by Claire Dieter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. who's a friend of mine now, and it's about yoga, and each 
chapter was named after a yoga pose. And so the book moved forward in time, but it also was sort of thematic. And I remember reading this book a decade ago and being like, oh, that's how you can make a book when you don't know how to plot, which I do not. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm thinking of, I have a kind of organizing principle that I'm going to use, but it'll be like a book that you start on page one and then read to the end. Got but it. I don't want it to be like, and then in 1997, you know, right, so it's not going to be boring. completely linear. Yeah. No, I mean, nobody cares. And I don't care. <laughs> I'm always trying to kind of entertain myself, first of all. but. Um, and the first book, you know, we thought about making it a straight ahead memoir. And then partly I wanted to be able to demonstrate, since it was my first book, like everything I could do. So there's a little bit of like, it's a, a called like, a, it's a variety pack. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Mm -hmm. um, we read Claire Dieter's book, Love and Trouble. Um, yeah. When we first started the podcast, we did like a book club on in our secret Facebook group. Oh, cool. That was the book. And we chatted about that. You picked that, right, Sandra? I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we like her writing a lot. I haven't read Poser, but now, and now I'll put, add it it's to my list. It's really fun. I mean, I, I've done it. I, I've practiced yoga for a long time. So um, it was especially fun for me. Like I, I would laugh at things that maybe people who who did, hadn't done yoga wouldn't get, but, but it's, it's very accessible. Like you don't have to know anything about yoga, but I feel like most people have kind of at least dabbled these days. Um, love and I was reading love and trouble when I was finishing my book. Um, mm -hmm. I was reading that and I was reading a book of essays called abandon me by Melissa Thibos. Yeah. I've read that too. Mm -hmm. And they both made me so much bolder. I was writing some, it was some of the sections about like love and sex in the book. And I was like, if they can say these things, I can say these things too. Um, and now I'm hoping there will be, you know, women who, who feel that, that way about my work, that it, it gives them permission. But yeah, I thought Love and Trouble was an amazing book. And Claire told me at one point, she said, you know, I kind of set out to write a female narrator who was not likable. Um, and I was like, well, I like you. <laughs> I like this <laughs> We're but, friends. Yeah, yeah, we're friends. Yeah, I also know, but, but I, I get it. Like this, I'm just going to be myself and not worry about being relatable to every woman in yeah. America. And, and I thought that was really, really cool. Yeah, very cool. And, and you're right. It's, and then it's like all the unlikables can, can band together. And yeah, because <laughs> I'm so tired of this idea of like the, you know, and I'll get it sometimes in reaction to my work, but they're like, well, I didn't think it was relatable because she did this thing that I haven't done. <laughs> like, like, she did a different job than I did. And it's like, write your own book. Yeah, it's like you have a book in you. <laughs> you only, right, like, you only want to read about people who are just like you. But I think that, you know, likability is something that dogs women. We see it with, with political candidates a lot. And, um, and the new likability, I think, is relatability. I think we use the word relatability as kind of a, um, it's a stand-in. We're not saying, well, someone's not likable, but we'll say that they're not relatable. And it's just interesting. I think that some people we just don't find likable or relatable, but I think it's, it's good to ask ourselves when we're saying that about women, like, what, like, what is it? Is it really true? Or is it really just that she's making me uncomfortable in some way? Right. I right. like women so much more now that I'm sober. Yeah, me too. You know, I have a tolerance. I can be more open-minded. I can see how judgmental I used to be. And mm -hmm. I have a chance to do it differently now. And, and it's, it surprised me how many female friendships I have in sobriety because I, I didn't have that many before. And I wasn't yeah. a really good friend before, but I feel like I am now. 
And it's so, and I love being with sober women because they're like kind of calm. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just sort of like, I feel like I can just talk to them and um, there's, yeah, I've never, I've always been kind of a calm, introverted person and I've definitely found it easier to find those friendships in sobriety where not that you don't crack up and that kind of thing, but it's just sort of, um, I don't know, it's not so manic all the time. Yeah. For me, it's like, what's missing here? Oh, drama. We do. Right. No dr- <laughs> right. right. <laughs> I never liked something I never liked drama. Yeah. I knew I hated. <laughs> right, right. And when yeah. I see it now, I'm just like, ooh, I've got to get away from that. Yeah, steer clear. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Chrissy, we could talk to you forever. Oh, totally. Like but I have one question I have to ask you before we get yes. to our toolbox section. And yes. it's gonna sound really silly. What's your favorite go-to red lipstick right now, brand and color? I just really am done. <laughs> Oh my God. Let me see. Let me see. see. What's in your bag? You got your purse nearby? Cause we know you got epic purses yes. and bags. It's actually, I do. I'm a sort of purse hog. Um, <laughs> you know, I went through and I Marie Kondo'd my makeup the other day mm-hmm. and I have a lot of red lipsticks. It's weird. I didn't really wear red lipstick regularly until after I got sober. Ooh. I know. It's a thing. I think that is interesting. I always felt like Getting I was a wearing bolder. a costume before. Like mm-hmm. I've always worn makeup, but I felt like I was wearing like I was dressed up like Rosie the Riveter. <laughs> and I right. partly I had to find the right red. Like I tend to wear like not that bright of like a 1940s red. Um, it's by Tom Ford and it's called um, Fetishist. Ooh. Yeah. I like it. And it's like it's, the name. Yeah. Well, that's partly, I was like, Ooh, this sounds kinky. I'm going to buy it. Right. <laughs> I knew I had to ask this <laughs> question. Good marketing, Excellent. Tom. <laughs> yes, it's good. He's like, very good. A, a makeup shade that sounds kind of slutty, like I will buy it. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> You're like sold. Yeah. Well, and can I can I just tell you that Tom Ford brought his mom into the restaurant that I worked at <gasps> in the '90s? I know, oh. I know. Me and and my gay my gay friend uh-huh. behind the bar, we were dying, completely dying. And can I just say that that man is so beautiful and. <laughs> And he's really, you know, he's a great, he's a really good film director. Like he's, he's really kind of amazing. And his clothes, not that I can afford his clothes, but they're like wearable. Like they're, I think he actually does like women. No, he loves women. He, yeah. Yes. He, he, he brought his mom. That's, <laughs> he that's so mom to, to, to brunch. Oh, love <laughs> he that. loves his mama and he, yes, he I does. I love that. He's, I think he's sober too. Oh, he mm. might be. I, I, am I getting him mixed up? Well, Mark Jacobs definitely is. Mark Jacobs definitely is. Tom Ford. Yeah, I think he is because I heard, I read this hilarious thing about like his daily routine. Like he is high maintenance. And it was all about <laughs> no, like, I bet. crazy. <laughs> um, but it was all these, you know, herbs he's taking. And it sounded like, like he's living clean to a degree that I cannot even fathom. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you guys, I just Googled it. And here's, here's an article that just popped up. It says, why Mr. Tom Ford gets up earlier than you. And, <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> of all the crazy stuff he does. But he, it does. And in, in this article was from 2015. This other one says on his home life, past struggle with alcoholism and more. So yes. Yeah. 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 I think it's common. But I, I, I firmly believe that there is a red lipstick for every woman. That does not mean every woman needs to wear a red lipstick, but, but 
I actually will get letters from people who are like, I want to talk about lipstick with you. (laughs) I love it. And you're right. There's some that are more orangey. There's some that are more purpley. You have to, you have to try on a whole. You have to find your own. What I always tell women is, I think my gateway was like NARS Gypsy, which is like a soft kind of terracotta red. And, and it was like, I almost felt like I wasn't wearing red. And then you just kind of, it's a gateway drug. Right. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> when, I love how everyone's obsessed with, um, Alexa, I just call her AOC, but her red lipstick, which is like Stila Beso. And everyone's buying that now. Um, Stila Beso. You're giving me so much information. Well, it's a red, I can't it's wait. A nice red. I just started I, wearing red. So yeah. What, what I think I'm going to do is take the reds. Cause I called a lot of reds that I was like, this just doesn't quite work for me or it's exactly like four others I own. And I'm going to start just like giving them away because they're like pretty nice lipsticks. So I'm going to get yeah, them I mean, alcohol. When you, yeah. When you were talking about Marie Condoing, I got kind of tingly. Yeah. <laughs> I was really like thinking, wow, I wish I would have been in that room. I, I know a friend of, of yours that might be on an island with you. So <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, I say, because like a, a, a writer friend locally was like, I, I just, I know there's got to be a red for me and I don't know what that is. And I was like, well, we are going to find it. <laughs> I'm going to hand over, a, you know, like you're going to walk away with a lipstick. So um, now watch, I'll be out in public and people will be like, what do you got? What do you got? Right. <laughs> oh, well, Christy, we are going to wrap it up with your unruffled toolbox. And so yes. for any listeners that are new to the show, this is the part of the show where we share three items from either share um, creativity mm-hmm. or um, sobriety related um, tools. And um, just to give people uh, an idea of what they can do or take it with them and add to their toolbox if they want. So yeah, what you got? What's your top three? My top three? Well, you know, in terms of activity, you know, writing obviously is huge for me because it's how I figure out what I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know until I write it out. So I have a Mac laptop that I bought a couple of years ago and um, it's so nice and lightweight. I can just carry it. I take it almost everywhere with me. Um, partly cause I'm always frantically working on something, but, um, because it's just here and I can just open it up and like open up Google docs and, and just do my writing. And it's just such a, it's like, it's, it's an appendage the way that my phone is an appendage at this point. Um, so that's like a very literal tool. Um, and then the writing, which is, is just how I, how I understand the world, I understand myself. Um, I started, I, I hesitate to even call it bullet journaling because my bullet journal does not look anything like those beautiful ones you see online. (laughs) Um, But I started doing it around the time the book came out because I was freaking out. Partly I was just having like a psychic meltdown, but also there were so many moving pieces and things I needed to remember and itineraries. And I bought like a, I don't know, it's like a Lextrum notebook or something and started this very basic bullet journaling. And it's really made a difference in my life. I still lapse, I fall away, and I have to come back to it. But just writing things down, um, like the guy who, the getting things done guy said, you know, it just gets it out of your brain and someplace safe. And it's brought me all this like security or even a piece of like serenity that I didn't have before. And um, it just makes me feel safe <laughs> somehow. Yeah. I, I, have, I have a little, I call it a log book, but yes. Yeah. So, yours is probably I, beautiful. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, I bought That's not the goal the, though, right? It's just to get it in there. Just to get it in there. Yeah. yeah. And I figure if I can get better at, at decorating, then I will someday. And, um, and then exercises um, for creativity and sobriety, really. Like I've always, well, not always, but 
have, have been an exerciser for a long time. Um, but like running, I, I run probably, I don't know, 10 or 12 miles a week. And um, like hard exercise is very important to me. It clears my head and um, it just does really good things for me. It'll, it'll, I can solve problems that way. If I have a, a writing issue that I can't seem to think my way past, often I'll find on a run, maybe not that day, but at some point it'll just come to me. Like it kind of shakes me out of my- Right, it's almost like it jiggles it out or something. Yeah, it's really useful. And, and it's mm-hmm. not, I'm not any kind of great athlete or anything, but, um, but I do consider myself an athlete and I find it just, it, there's nothing that, you know, a run or even like a walk or a hike can't make a little better. Um, if I'm stressed or if I'm angry, like it just, it just shifts things in my head some. So that's hugely important. I, I exercise a ton when I first got sober because it, it was a way to make myself tired. When you're tired, mm-hmm. you can just go to bed, you know? Um, and I, I think I still tell people, I'm like, you know, go for a walk. Like, don't be afraid to just tire yourself out. Don't like abuse yourself physically, but, um, but it was, it was big. And, and that's a key part of my, um, my mental health, I think. I have other things I wish were tools. Like I keep trying to meditate and then I stop and yeah. um, Same. You know, but, but, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Every time I do it, I'm like, I love this. And then I'll, you know, three weeks later, I'm like, oh yeah, I should do that again. Why don't I keep doing that? It makes me feel good. Right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, this feels good. Why don't I feel, maybe that's why I don't do it because mm-hmm. I don't want to feel good or something. I don't know. But, um, and then I, you know, I go to therapy and all that stuff. Um, but, uh, but those are probably my, my top three. Be- being a writer is interesting. My husband, um, he doesn't practice art a lot right now, but he's a sculptor and a painter. And he's always said, you know, when you're a painter or a sculptor, there's like busy work you can do in the studio that, that when you're not actually making art, you can still be mixing your paints or cleaning brushes. And with writing, you really don't get much of that. Um, you could be doing a writing exercise or journaling, but you're still writing. So I feel kind of yeah. cheated. <laughs> um, there's well, not you much. have to live a little to write about it, right? I mean, that's true. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or read other books or see movies, or be inspired by. Movies and music are really big for me. If I'm, if I'm struggling with writing, it can be hard to read or I, or I can read like if I'm writing a book, I'm reading just thrillers or something. You something know, not, totally different. Yeah. Yeah. Completely different. But, um, but if but movies and music are huge for me when I'm writing, and I'm trying to incorporate more visual art too. You know, I always forget I live in this big city with museums and galleries, and um, I'll just go see something, um, and that that can be just huge. But it, yeah, it tends to be other forms of art that'll unlock something in me, um, because you don't get that that sense of puttering the way that you know a painter yeah. or a sculptor can, and that it's not fair, sense. but that's just how it is. That makes sense. Mm. Oh, well, Chrissy, can you tell people where they can find your book? Nothing yes. good can come from this. You can, um, you can get it pretty much anywhere books are sold. Um, it is, and there's links from my website, which is just christycoulter.com, um, where you can get it, you know, from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Powell's, or, um, it's in, you know, a lot of physical bookstores. It's even been in airport bookstores, which I'm told is, is, quite an achievement so um, <laughs> which I, I thought yeah I guess that's true because there's like one bookstore and if your book is there that's cool and I love the idea that someone might be um, I never really drank in airports but I love the idea that someone might be in an airport newly sober trying not to drink and they would find my book that yeah. would be happy that they'd be yeah. like oh I have a friend here 
Yeah. And um, yeah, and there's links to lots of other um, work from my website too, just things that have been published online. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christy, for your time, thank you. for your friendship, and for all, I just wish you all the success in the world. Oh, I want to read everything you write. Oh, well, and I'm hoping to get the blog, I've, I've been, you know, with the book coming out, I've had it neglected a little bit because you can only do so many things, yeah. but get back to that a little more regularly too. Um, we'll see how it works out. <laughs> right. <laughs> how many hours there are in a day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for getting up early and chatting with us. And uh, happy to, I'm yeah. fully caffeinated now too. All so. right. <laughs> All right. Bye, Christy. Uh, bye, bye guys. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.